Well, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and the series is titled Blessed. And we've learned that the word blessed means happy, and we're happy because of God's favor. It's not anything that we accomplish. It's not like we met some goals, so we're happy, but it's because of God's favor on our lives. And we also have been talking about how the Beatitudes, which are the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, the part that we're finishing up today, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not a prescription for how we should live, but rather a description of how we will live as followers of Christ. So we've, we've talked after an introductory sermon, just a, kind of an overall look at the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes specifically. Then we talked about the first three Beatitudes and I call that blessed are the lowly. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. So we kind of combine that into blessed are the lowly, humility. And then we talked about another three, the next three, and I call this blessed are the holy, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, and blessed are the pure in heart. So blessed are the holy. And today we're going to talk about the last two, and I'm simply calling this blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. So before we talk about blessed are the persecuted, we can't talk about that without first talking about the peacemakers. And so these two are really combined. So let's look at verse 9, first of all. Matthew 5, 9 reads like this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, right? So we're going to talk about, we're going to end up talking about the persecuted, but we got to first talk about the peacemakers because, like I said, they're aligned. They're aligned. A lot of times because we as Christians are peacemakers, then we, or that opens our lives up and our testimony up to being criticized or to resistance or to opposition. And so those two go together. Now, Every Christian, what Jesus is saying here is as followers of, of Christ, every Christian is meant to be a peacemaker, both in the community, in the church, in, in the family. Sometimes families are divided, and that's a very sad thing, isn't it? But we as Christians are to be peacemakers. And yeah, I know it's true that, that conflict would, would be the inevitable result of the fact that Jesus came to earth, he talked about this even in one's own family. He came to divide and, and that meaning that people are divided in how they respond to Jesus and how they feel about Jesus. But it's clear beyond question throughout the teaching of Jesus and the other apostles that we should never seek conflict, that we should never be responsible for conflict. We're called to peace. We're to actively pursue peace. We are to strive for peace with all men, the scriptures say. And so far as it depends on us, we are to live peaceably with all. That's what we do as followers of Christ. So what then is a, a peacemaker? Well, first of all, before I tell you, my definition of a peacemaker, I should remind you that being a peacemaker, like all the other 
Beatitudes that we've talked about, and we talked about this in the very first sermon, being a peacemaker is not a matter of natural disposition. Now, we, I, I know some people that are easygoing. I've been described that way. One of my friends one time described me as somebody who just kind of blends in with the furniture because I'm just kind of there, you know. So, But that's not, you know, we're not talking about people who just naturally are easygoing. And, and this is something, as we talked about early on, that is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's not natural disposition, but it's Holy Spirit disposition. So it's not just somebody who's easygoing. Oh, he's just, you know, it doesn't matter what happens. He's going to go with the flow. And it doesn't mean also that uh, we have to be a peace at any price person. And it doesn't mean that I'll do anything to avoid trouble. It, that's not what we're talking about because a peaceful person is not afraid uh, or a peacemaker, I should say, is not afraid to take a stand for righteousness. So what then is a peacemaker? A peacemaker is someone who is inclined to peace and is not quarrelsome or looking for conflict. Someone who is inclined to peace and is not quarrelsome or looking for conflict. And how we need peacemakers in our communities today, don't we? Oh, man. Just get on social media. And sometimes I, I make the mistake of starting to read comments on somebody's post. And that's usually a mistake. I said things can go downhill really fast. I mean, even know what I'm talking about. I mean, some people can be so ugly and so quarrelsome and just looking for, for an argument, just looking for conflict. We call those people trolls. Don't be a troll on social media. There's so much hatred and anger and suspicion in our world today. And some people almost crave conflict. But that's not us, right? That's not us. It shouldn't be us. But again, being a peacemaker is a work of God. It doesn't mean, as I just said a while ago, that a person who's a, a peacemaker is an appeaser or a person that ignores justice. In fact, a peacemaker will confront sin when it's necessary to foster righteousness, to foster righteousness. But he'll do all that, again, because all these Beatitudes go together. So he'll do all that in a spirit of meekness, with a pure love, with a pure heart for those who have sinned. So a peacemaker's trying to foster righteousness, but he doesn't do it angrily. He does it with love toward those that need the righteousness of Christ. We talked last week about how pure, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. And how that refers to having a pure love for God and for our neighbors, as Jesus taught. Pure, undivided. And so a peacemaker will take a stand for righteousness, will confront sin when necessary but always with the spirit of meekness. And as we talked about meekness a couple of weeks ago, meekness means that you don't look for revenge. You don't look to hit back, to punch back, but you do it out of love so that those who have sinned can find the righteousness of God. So we're called to be peacemakers. Now let's talk about the persecuted in verse 10, Matthew 5, 10. Jesus said this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he elaborates a little more. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So let's talk about who are the persecuted then? Who are the persecuted? Well, according to what Jesus is teaching here, the persecuted are those who face resistance and opposition because of their loyalty to Jesus. Those who face resistance and opposition because of their loyalty to Jesus. And that resistance and opposition can be in different grades. It's a different level for people in other countries than it is for us. It's resistance and opposition, but for them in the Middle East, for example, it's a lot more serious than it is for us. But nonetheless, those who face resistance and opposition because of their loyalty to Jesus. Now, I think it's kind of surprising. This is kind of surprising because when you look at the Beatitudes, you think that if you live a life of mercy and of meekness, if you live a life of integrity, if you live a life of hunger for God, if you had just a beautiful contrite spirit, if you're poor in spirit, which means you're dependent on God, you would think that these are things that everybody would want and everybody would appreciate in you because you know, these are good things. But Jesus says, actually, the opposite will happen. That living out and, and displaying the, the power of God and, and the Beatitudes actually creates a, a culture of resistance rather than approval. When we live the way that Jesus said we are to live, you think people would applaud and say, yes, Christians in this world, I mean, they're doing a good thing. And instead, you know, they're, they're disapproving and they're resisting and they're opposing. And so the first kind of persecution that he, that Jesus warns us about is basically, but let's talk about the physical persecution. He said, blessed, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you. All right, that word persecute, Right there, the Greek is, is the idea of, of someone laying hands on you angrily, right? Not like laying hands on you to pray for you as the New Testament teaches this, but laying hands on you angrily. If somebody does that to you, then because of lo your loyalty to Jesus, then that's the persecution that he's talking about. It has the idea of imprisonment. I actually had a student many years ago when I was teaching at Edison Junior High. I had a student lay hands on me and in a way that he shouldn't have. And it was getting ready to start a class. The tardy bell rang and I was closing the door. I was standing at the door to my classroom. When the tardy bell rang, I was closing the door as I was walking in. And then I heard some noise and I looked down the hall and there were two boys, older boys, they were freshman boys. Edison was seventh, eighth, and ninth. So they were freshman boys, and they were fighting in the hallway. And there was one female teacher trying to keep them apart. And I thought, oh, I don't want to get involved. But not, I mean, I have to, right? So I went over there and used my strong voice. You know, all the things they, they teach us, don't get in the middle. You know, just yell at them first firmly. And that didn't work, you know. So then I grabbed one of the boys, and I pulled them off. And then they separated. Like, they didn't really want to fight, but they separated. And so they both calmed down. And so we decided, the other teacher and I decided, okay, I remember I told her, you, you take that student down, go down the stairs. No, let's not take them together. I'll, I'll go up 
down this hallway upstairs and you go down to the office. And so we separated them. So I've got him by the arm. This way we're walking. And as soon as they had separated, I let go. And I'm not even talking to him. I'm just walking. I'm just upset because I needed to be in my classroom teaching. And I said, I'm taking this guy to the office. And so once I let him go, we, we just took a few steps. And then suddenly he turned on me and he put his hands on me. And he grabbed me by the, by, by the shirt, I think, or something. He grabbed me and he threw me up against the, the wall, the lockers. And I just went. I mean, he was bigger than me. He's a freshman. You know, he's a big guy. So he threw me up and I hit the wall. And I was nice enough to bounce right back to him. So he grabbed me again and, and he threw me down on the floor. And oh, he tried to. So in some way, I was able to turn it around because I'm such a good fighter, you know, just was able to turn it around. And then, so then he grabs my tie. I was wearing a tie. I don't think I wore a tie anymore after that, but he grabbed my tie and he pulled me. I was so mad. I, he pulled me close and I, I told him, that was a big mistake. And he kind of calmed down. Right around at that time, the coach was just coming around the corner. He saw that brand, you know, so he ended up being kicked out of school. I had to write a report. You know how all those things work. But it's no fun to have somebody lay hands on you in that manner. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about people doing that, this persecution. This, is, this deals with physical persecution. Because of Jesus, right? I'm not going to say that I got, you know, assaulted because of Jesus. The guy just had an anger problem. I don't know what was going on. But he's talking about laying, somebody laying hands on you. Like I said, it has the idea of imprisonment. And in fact, this word really refers to very harsh physical persecution. Now, this was part of the experience of the early church. Some of you know that the emperor Nero used to dip Christians in tar and set them on fire like tiki torches in his palaces. And so you see you know, people think, oh, there's, you know, there's light, there's fire. Oh, those are people that were Christians. And so he would do other things like having them wrapped in sheepskins, sheepskins, sorry, and put them in, in, in an arena and then release wild animals to chase them down and to kill them, to the applause of people who were watching this in the arena. They went through so many things, the early church did, so many things in their life. But I think we also need to remember that this is happening today in many places and other parts of the world. I mentioned the Middle East, where Christians are being killed because of their loyalty to Jesus. We must not forget them, and we must not forget that it's happening today. So he's talking about physical persecution, but in verse 11, he's also talking about another kind of persecution when he says, blessed are you when people insult you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. All right, so this is a, a verbal persecution when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because you're a Christian for being a Christian. This is where accusations are leveled at Christians that are not true. And maybe against you. Maybe you have faced this kind. We, we haven't faced physical persecution where we're, we're being assaulted because of our loyalty to Jesus or, or even being killed. But maybe you have faced this kind of verbal persecution where people misrepresent 
what you believe or what you stand for. We, we see a lot of this in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? This is the sort of thing that the Pharisees always did, trying to judge the words of Jesus to see if they could catch him in, in, in some way and use what he said against him, use what he said as an accusation against him. And so we see it in the life of Jesus. We see this kind of reality happening all the time in the early church. Christians themselves, excuse me, wrestled with this, not only with a physical persecution, but with this verbal persecution. The Romans called Christians cannibals because they did what we're going to do today. After the sermon, we're going to celebrate communion. And so they would say that the Christians are eating the body and blood of Jesus. And so the Romans spread these rumors that they were, they were cannibals and they're going to abduct your children or they're going to take them away and they're going to eat them. That's what they were saying. And people were believing that. And so they were being persecuted. That's a form of persecution. They also, the Romans also spread inappropriate rumors about Christian sexual practices saying, that the Christians, forgive me for saying this, but this is what they would say, that Christians have all these orgies because they greet one another with a holy kiss and they call each other brother and sister. All these things were happening to Christians. They were misrepresenting who they were, what they believed and what their practices were. And then, of course, because they wouldn't submit to the lordship of Caesar, then they were called revolutionaries and Zealots, what? There is a a book titled Good Faith that was written by Gabe Lyons, who at one time, and I don't know if he still is, was with the Catalyst. I, I, I don't think he is anymore. Gabe Lyons and Dave Kinneman, who writes, Dave Kinneman does a lot of research, a lot of research. He has a research, a works for a research company. And they wrote this book together, and their, the book is about their research that shows that in America, according to their research, and this is a scientific study, that in America, Christians are perceived by two defining words today in modern society. And the two words are irrelevant and extreme. That's how people see Christians today. That's how people see us today. Irrelevant is the first one, which means that they believe that the, the teachings of Jesus that we believe are good news. The world says, that ah, doesn't mean anything to us. That's irrelevant. It has nothing to say to our lives today. That was something for the past. It worked in the past, maybe. Maybe it worked for even for our grandparents. But for us today in modern America, it's irrelevant. And the second word is the word extreme. And extreme means that it borders on the dangerous. They're dangerous. Christians are dangerous. In other words, what they believe is harmful. Their ideology, their teaching, their beliefs, all those things are harmful to our society. They're harmful to our culture. So it raises a question, how do we then interact in the world today? How do we invite people to Easter? How do we invite our friends? How do we talk to them about Jesus? when people's general perception of us is that we have nothing to say to the human condition in modern days. 
And also, if, if we take it seriously, we're, if we take our beliefs seriously, then we're bordering on some kind of fanaticism that is dangerous and possibly we're mentally unstable and that's dangerous and we're, we're toxic. Our beliefs are toxic for modern society. You know, irrelevant and extreme. These are insults that are being pushed against us in modern times. We see this more and more. We see it in mass media. Have you noticed how in mass media, it seems like Christians are the only people that you can mock without consequence in our modern world. You can mock Christians without any consequences. Try to mock a Muslim. Heavy consequences. Try to mock a Jewish person. And we shouldn't mock anybody. Not Muslims, not Jews. But try to mock someone and see what happens. Try to mock someone from the LGBT community, and we never should. But try to mock someone from that community and see what happens. But Christians? You can say anything about Christians that you want. You just deride them, culture, and... And I, we're going to, I think, keep seeing more and more of that in our culture. But that is the persecution that I think we, we, we are beginning to face. Nothing again, it's not physical persecution, but it's opposition nonetheless because of our loyalty to Jesus Christ. And so I mentioned insults. This is another form of verbal or perhaps emotional persecution that Jesus talks about in verse 11. And this is, this is really about causing some kind of public shame, like reviling. This is a very strong word in the Greek that to revile and to cause public shame. And maybe some of you have faced this kind of persecution, the insults part of it in, in your job. Maybe you've experienced it in small doses or maybe intense doses. This is what happens in the HR policies of our world today, right? Where we have to, to take some, some kind of diversity training because they want us to accept a certain lifestyle. And so there might be small doses, maybe more intense doses, but that's part of the public shaming. It's like there's just an assumption that anybody who is a Christian is an idiot or is a bigot, is not intelligent is not a threat to, or rather is a threat to the organization where you work. And so maybe you got to go through some training. You know, maybe we got to help you understand how, you know, how you should think. And this just shows the kind of shaming that can happen when people follow Jesus. It's like a social media mob mentality when somebody follows Jesus, even if they follow Jesus in a very thoughtful way, in a very articulate way. And I'm not talking about people and other people who lack nuance when they get on social media. They lack grace. They just start making fun of people, sinners, this, that. And that's not what I'm talking about. You know, I, I think, and that's important for us to see here today, that there is such a thing as false persecution. There's a way in which maybe we live out our life and we present our faith in the world that actually could do damage to Christianity because we're not living out, for example, the Beatitudes and we're, we're trying to present our faith in an angry way, in a mocking way, and that does damage to Christianity. In fact, maybe have nothing to do with what, you know, what we truly believe as followers of Jesus. 
But then some of those people who do that will turn around and say that they're being persecuted. And, and I want to say, you're being persecuted because of the way you're acting in a non-Christian manner, not because of your loyalty to Jesus. You're being persecuted because of your pride and, and your anger and your revenge approach, not because you're being loyal to Jesus. Jesus said we would experience persecution for righteousness' sake and because of Him. Now, righteousness is that standard of following Jesus in various categories, whether it's ethical, moral, those sorts of things that convict the world. He says we would be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Righteousness sake. And righteousness paints a contrasting world between, the, between God's value system and the world's value system. So we follow the ways of God, the ways of Jesus, we're going to experience resistance. Just to, just a couple of ways that, that I see this playing itself out, itself out in, our, in our society, in our culture today. The first one is in the area of sexual ethics. Because if you hold to a historic position of Christian sexual ethics, expect to experience resistance and opposition. If you hold to what the Bible teaches about Christian sexual ethics, what the Bible has taught and what the church has believed for 2,000 years. This is not new, folks. The one man, one woman in marriage is not new. This is, it comes from the scriptures. The church has taught this for 2,000 years. And if you hold to that, though, if you hold to that today, then you're going to experience resistance and opposition. How many of you have already experienced that? Maybe in your own families you've experienced that. Now, granted, I think the church has done a poor job in, in some ways of representing the Christian sexual ethics. They can teach it, but maybe they don't always practice it well. But with the, the sexual scandals and moral failures, high-profile ministers, that hurts. That hurts the work of God in this world. I mean, we lose authority to speak on this when we rail against sexual sin but we allow it in certain, in certain cases where maybe policy to us is more important than the purity of the teaching of God's word in sexual ethics. These things affect the way the world sees us and the way they oppose us and, our, and the way they oppose our Christian sexual beliefs. And I'm speaking generally, of course, but the fact is that we lose moral authority when we a moral authority to speak on this subject when we're not consistent in our beliefs and our behavior. So at some point, we're going to find ourselves in a situation where we have to say what Christians have believed for 2,000 years, that the only legitimate place for a God-honoring sexual experience is in a marriage between a man and a woman. And any expression outside of that is a sin. We can be compassionate, we can be understanding, we can be patient, but at some point, we're going to have to declare the truth clearly because that's what the Bible teaches. And we should be Christians who handle that issue prayerfully and gracefully. I want to preach mercy. I want to preach, preach grace and the goodness of God, but I also never want to compromise on those convictions. And when we don't compromise, people will actively resist us and oppose it. The second area where I see this happening is in the area of the exclusivity of Jesus as Savior. 
the exclusivity of Jesus as Savior. Jesus made the claim that no one can come to the Father but through Him, except through Him. But we live in a time of history right now where we're exposed to so many other religions of the world, and we've learned to appreciate certain things about other religions. You know, there are some beautiful parts, some compelling parts of other traditions and and beliefs. But appreciating cultural traditions and beliefs of other religions is not the same thing as affirming that all religions are equally true or all religions are legitimate paths to salvation. No matter how much we love people of other traditions, at some point we're going to have to say clearly Jesus is the only way to God the Father. And that's going to produce resistance. I mean, how dare you say that? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? How, how dare you say that Jesus is the only way? And I'll share a, a story here, and some of you may be familiar with this, but there's a video clip that I've seen for several years. This probably happened 20, 25 years ago, I guess, 25 years ago or so. And it was, a, it was in the Oprah Winfrey talk show, and... So she had a guest, and I'm not sure what the guest was talking about. It was about religion, and a lady stood up. She lets people stand up, apparently, from the audience, and she began to say, you know, that she began to talk about how Jesus is the only way. And Oprah interrupts and says, that's just, that can't be, that's not so. There can't be just one way. Right? And I don't know her spiritual beliefs at all, but, I mean, that's pretty typical. Right? It's pretty typical. People say, how dare you? That's so ignorant. That's so intolerant. And, and, and we have to say, look, maybe you can say, you know, it's not my intention to be ignorant or intolerant. It's not. But this is what Jesus said, and I take a stand on this. I believe. So in conclusion, I want us to see two things here. First of all, if we are persecuted today, we can rejoice that we belong to a noble succession of men and women who have been prosecuted, persecuted rather. Look at Matthew 5.12. Jesus finished this part by saying, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So many prophets, Jesus himself, unto death. So we're part of a noble succession. We can rejoice in that. But secondly, the, I think the, the major reason we should rejoice is because we are suffering, Jesus said, because of him. Jesus said, he said, because of me, when, you, when you're persecuted because of me, on account of our loyalty to Jesus and on account to our loyalty and our belief to his standards of righteousness and of truth. And I know that the, the disciples, when you read the book of Acts, they, they learned this lesson well because when they were beaten by the members of the Sanhedrin, they were threatened not to say any more about the name of Jesus. The Bible says in the book of Acts that they left the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were worthy, they were counted worthy to suffer for his name, for the name of Jesus. So I've thought, can I really rejoice in my sufferings for Jesus? I think if, if our commitment is real and our devotion is sincere, we'll rejoice and not complain. Oh, there's a part of us that, I guess as humans, will 
ask why this is not fair, but can we ultimately rejoice in our sufferings for Jesus? Again, not sufferings because we're, we're being you know, idiots online or something or with our friends, but really because of our loyalty to Jesus, really because we're taking a stand on the exclusivity of Jesus. And, and the, the other big one that right now is Christian sexual ethics. Can you rejoice for that? I pray that it would be so, because that's the way we are meant to live. That's what the, the Beatitudes are about. That's how we're meant to live. I'm going to invite you to bow in prayer as we finish our time and approach God in worship. And in a few minutes, we're going to be taking communion as well. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word once again and the things that you teach us the things that challenge us, the things that encourage us. Even the things that challenge us are encouraging to us because they, they remind us that there is a, a standard of righteousness in your word. There is a standard of righteousness that comes from you. It's not man-made, it's not church-made, but these are beliefs that are found in your word, that are given to us from you in your word to us. Lord, I pray, first of all, for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that are literally being tortured physically. They're being killed. They're being separated from their loved ones, all because of their loyalty to you. I pray for protection on them, their children, their entire families. I pray in as that their faith would not fail. We don't understand we 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 can't fathom what they're going you know and we ask for it, that this would never stop your word from being lord we don't face persecution like they do father i just really even hate to use the word persecution in in our setting but yet we do face resistance opposition maybe even mocking Help us to remain strong. Help us to remain pure in heart in our love toward you and your creation. But help us. Help us to be faithful to you. 